While the uh, New Testament does give the, the teachings and the commands of Jesus, even more so, the New Testament is saying that, look, this is a historical, reliable account of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then the things that happened after his ascension back to heaven. The things that the apostles did to get the early church started, and it's reporting all the things that was happening, not only in Israel during the first century, but also then throughout the then-known world in the first century. Now, skeptics would say, well, if that's the case, if it's actual historical documents, then there should probably be some facts that back it up. If not, you guys are just believing a, a bunch of fairy tales. I mean, I have a lot of atheist friends that they believe that if they open up the Bible, it's going to read of Jesus and, and a blue ox or, you know, something like that or it's going to start to once upon a time or, you know, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And so they're like, look, is there actual facts that back up what it is that you're talking about? And so what we're doing in this series called Evidence is we're looking at, okay, is there actual facts that, that back it up? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are they reliable historical accounts of what really happened in ancient first century Israel and the then known world? Or is it just as the critics say, a bunch of fairy tales. Now, last week I introduced you to who's probably the most famous detective in all of America. His name is J. Warner Wallace. He has won all kinds of awards for his detective skills. He's been on Dateline NBC more than any other person has ever been on there. And if you remember, he said, when it comes to eyewitness testimony, you don't trust an eyewitness, you do what? You have to, who remembers? Somebody said it, I heard it. You don't trust an eyewitness, you test an eyewitness. And so he gave us four different tests that they give to eyewitness testimony. Four ways to see is this person telling the truth or not. And he said that, you know, these are actually the same four questions that a, a judge will give to jurors to say, look, you've heard a lot of eyewitness testimony during this case here. Here's the four broad categories that you can use to determine are they telling the truth or not. So let's actually look at them once again here, the, the four questions. The first one is this, were they truly present at the scene in order to see what they claim they saw? That makes sense, right? Were they actually there? Number two, can what they are saying be corroborated by any other form of evidence? Number three, have they been honest and accurate over time? And then number four, are they free of biases or prejudices that might cause them to lie? Now, last week we looked at the first question of, were they actually present? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were they really present in order to be able to write about what it is they say that they saw? And the answer that we came to was, yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they were actually there. Now, here's what I said to you at the end of the message, though. Just because we can prove that they're there doesn't mean that we don't know that they're not lying. They could still be lying. But as I, I shared with you, that means they would have to be lying early. Right? It's harder to lie early. Have any of you ever told a lie before? If the people are still there in the midst of what you just you know, did, you can't lie about that. Why? Because there's other people there. They're going to go, wait, that isn't what just happened here. And so it's the, it's the exact same thing. It's hard to lie early. The longer time goes on, it becomes easier to lie. But yet last week we, we saw, okay, they were there. But the question is, are they lying or not? So we got to go to the second question. Is there anything that would corroborate what they say? Is there any evidence that could, could help with that? Now, to understand corroboration, we need to know what does that word even mean? 
and how do we apply it to what we're looking at. So there on your outline, if you're, you're taking notes, internal cooperation, because there's two kinds, internal cooperation is something that cannot possibly be known unless you are really there. Say that again. Internal cooperation is something that cannot possibly be known unless you are really there. Does that make sense? Some things you can only know because you are actually there. The next one is external cooperation. That is any piece of evidence that supports the claims of an eyewitness's testimony. So again, external cooperation is any piece of evidence that supports the claims of an eyewitness's testimony. Giving an example that Jay Warner Wallace talks about in his best-selling book, The uh, Cold Case Christianity. He said that he was doing this uh, uh, crime, it was a murder, and he was investigating it. And he interviewed this woman, her name was Amy, and she claimed to be an eyewitness of the murder. And she said that she saw this guy, and he was at the murder scene at the time that, you know, the, the whole murder took place. Now, Amy did not know this potential suspect, but she had been able to pick him out of a police lineup. And when Jay Warner Wallace was interviewing her, he was asking very specific questions about, you know, what she had seen. And, and he said there was two things that really stood out in her testimony, her alleged eyewitness testimony. The first thing was she said that the suspect, he walked with a hunch. There was like some sort of like injury it had or something. He, he sort of had a hunch as he, was, as he was walking. The other thing that she took note of was she said that he was wearing a t-shirt advertising the band Journey's up, uh, upcoming escape tour. And so those were two things that, that sort of stood out to her. Now, eventually they arrest somebody. His name is Danny, a potential suspect. And Jay Warner Wallace said as he's interviewing Danny, one of the things that he noticed as Danny came walking into the room was he was walking with a hunch. Now, later on, when a search warrant was issued for Danny's home and for his car and various things, Sure enough, what did they find but a t-shirt for the band Journey's upcoming escape tour. Now, that's not alone enough to, to corroborate you know, everything. That, that's not enough to, to convict this guy, Danny. And so, as J. Warner Wallace is, like, talking to him and, and interviewing him, of course, Danny goes, oh, I didn't do it. In fact, I wasn't even in town on the day of the murder. But when they issued the search warrant and they were going through his car, they found in his car a receipt for a gas station just a quarter of a mile up the road where he had gotten gas on the day of the murder. So a quarter of a mile away from the, the victim's home on the day of the murder. Now, he's claiming that he wasn't even in town. But yet they found this receipt. Later, Jay Warner Wallace, he's interviewing Danny's sister. And she said in her statement that Danny had mentioned that he had stopped by the victim's home on the day of the murder. Now, here's the thing. Danny continued to deny it. They never found a murder weapon. They never had any DNA evidence. But yet he got convicted of murder. And by the way, long story short with it, 
at his sentencing, he then confessed that, yeah, he indeed had done it. But he had denied it all the way up to that point. No DNA, no murder weapon, but they were able to convict him. Why? Because there was corroborating evidence, exactly what we were talking about. So let's go back to the definitions. Internal cooperation is something that cannot possibly be known unless you are actually there. So play along here. Those of you watching online, play along. What types of things could Amy not have possibly known unless she was actually there? Two things. What was it? He walked with a hunch and the T-shirt that he was wearing, right? Couldn't have possibly known that unless she was actually there. What types of external cooperation was there? Things that would back up her statement. Because she's saying, I saw this guy, and he's the murderer. But do we just trust that or not? What types of external cooperation was there? There was the gas receipt, that he was just a quarter mile up the road, and the statement of Danny's sister saying that he had said that he had been there on the day of the murder. So that's how both the internal and external cooperation works. So the question we have to ask then is, is there any internal and external cooperation when it comes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and what they're writing? The answer to that is, yes, there is. Let's actually start with the internal cooperation. Well, Jay Warner Wallace says that anytime you have verbal statements from potential witnesses, there's always going to be some gaps in what they say, that no two eyewitnesses are going to say the exact same thing. Think of it this way. If you were um, on a street corner and it was like a four-way intersection and there was a car accident that happened, you're going to see it from one angle. Somebody else standing on another uh, side of the street corner, they're going to see it at a different angle. So all the corners, they're going to have the same testimony, but it's going to be slightly different. Does that make sense? Because you saw it a little bit different. And so Jay Warner Wallace says that, look, anytime we're interviewing eyewitnesses, if their stories are too lined up, we actually start to question it. We want to see a little bit of inconsistencies in the story. Because if not, it seems like it was rehearsed. That's why one of the things that you see if you've ever been in a crime scene or you watch a lot of crime TV or whatever is one of the first things that the police do at a, at a crime scene is they start to separate all the witnesses. Why? Because they don't want them to get together and start to have the same story. They want to hear these uh, different things. And so he says, look, it's actually better. The more eyewitnesses you can have, the better it is because you're going to see these different things. And he said that sometimes what happens is you'll like talk to one person and you're like, are you sure? And they're like, that's, it's just, that's what I saw. I, I'm sure. And they're like, okay. And he says, it's not until you talk to another eyewitness then that then they start to fill in some of the gaps that you're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense then. One of the examples he uses from Scripture is, you know, Jesus gets arrested, and at one point he's getting beaten. And they say to him, prophesy, who is it that's beating you right now? And it's like, well, that's dumb. Why would you write something like that? If somebody's standing in front of you beating you, why would you say prophesy what this is all about? And so that's what one of the gospel writers reports. And you're going, that doesn't make any sense. Of course Jesus knows who's beating him. It's the person right there in front of him. And so it's not until you read one of the other gospels that we read the extra detail that we didn't know before. And that is that they had blindfolded Jesus first. And that's why 
Now they say, prophesy, who is it that hit you? So does that make sense that you want to have a lot of eyewitnesses because they're going to start to fill in some gaps that other people aren't going to be able to, uh, to, to talk about? So and the, the question then is, are there ways in which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John help to actually corroborate each other's stories? Now, I know some of you here and some of you watching online, you're going, wait, 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 wait. Stop right there, especially if you're a skeptic. You're going... Of course, a biblical writer is going to say what the other biblical writers are writing is true. Of course, they're going to back each other up. But that's not what I'm talking about here at all. In fact, let me explain it to you this way. Let's look at something we looked at last week. If you remember the skeptics, especially a bunch of atheists, what they say is that the Gospels were written really late. Look at the timeline once again here on your screen. You remember this? We, we looked at Jesus' ministry was from 30 to 33 A.D. He's resurrected in 33 A.D. then. But we don't actually have the, the Bible as we know it put together until 363 A.D. at the Council of Laodicea. Now, I've talked about this in the first two weeks of the series, that we had all these individual letters that were floating around, but it wasn't until 363 after the, the, uh, the Edict of Toleration that Constantine had signed back in the early part of the 300s that made sort of Christianity the official religion of Rome that now Christians were free to worship in public and all these documents that had sort of been underground, they were all able to come out in the light and you were start to compare this one to that one. And, and some people had, you know, John and some of the other Gospels and some people had some of the writings of Paul and, and all of a sudden they're able to bring all these things together. So it's 363 then that it's all compiled together into what we call the New Testament, those 27 books that they said, these are the official recognized letters that are from the real eyewitnesses. And what they did then is they combined that together with the 39 books of the Jewish scriptures into the 66 books that today we would call the Bible. But if you remember last week I said that the skeptics say the Gospels actually weren't written by real people named Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. They are actually written by people in 200 A.D., 250 A.D., 300 A.D., people just claiming to be eyewitnesses that they were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so that's their argument, is they were written really, really late. And here's the other thing that they say. Those people that were just pretending to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were actually writing in places far away like Africa and in Europe. All right, let's think about this logically. And guys, you can take that off the, uh, you can take the timeline off for the stream. Think about this logically. Whether you believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually the real authors or not, what you cannot debate is that those documents, true or false, made it into what we call the Bible, the New Testament. As we look at each one of the Gospels, they average 15,000 words. Now, let me put that into modern-day perspective for you. What is 15,000 words? How many of you ever use Microsoft Word or any type of Word type of document? Okay. 15,000 words is single-spaced 30 pages in Microsoft Word. So it's not like a, a paragraph or two. These are page after page after page after page, okay? So I want you to keep that in mind. 30 pages in Microsoft Word. Here's the uh, sort of scenario I'm going to give you guys. I'm going to provide all of you, get ready for a big amen here, I'm going to provide all of you with a laptop 
for free. Amen. Amen. All right, that's a lie. See, see, there's certain things. Okay. <laughs> but but we're, we're just going to imagine I provided all of you here in the room with a laptop, all of you there on the stream, you've got a laptop as well. I'm like Oprah, right? You get a laptop, and you get a laptop, and you get a laptop. All right, so everybody's got a laptop. And here's what I want you to do. Because we love the people down in Haiti so much, and we have our sister church down there, and we support them, and we love the people down there. And so here's what you're going to do with your laptop. Without any access to the Internet, you're going to take your laptop, and you're going to write a history of the Haitian people from 200 years ago. And what I want you to do in it, it's the 30 pages that you're going to write. I want you to be very, very specific in this document. I want you to name over 100 people by name, including local rulers, national rulers. I want you to talk about local landmarks. I want you to talk about not just the big cities. I want you to talk about little small towns and villages. I want you to use like words and slang and vernacular that would only be known to the people living there in the area. I want you to talk about customs that they had in that day and time that, that only people that would have been living there, they would know these types of things, okay? So I have given you a free laptop. You're going to write 30 pages about Haitian history 200 years ago, specific names, locations, customs, words, phrases, slang, etc. How many of you think that if we gave your Word document... To the people in Haiti today, they would go, wow, that is our history. Anybody want to make that claim that they're going to say that's our history? No. Now, remember, I didn't just have one of you write a history of Haiti. I had all of you do it. And so if we started to take your document and your document and your document and your document and we started to compare them all together, they wouldn't even help to cooperate each other. They would be so different to be like, this is not true at all. Not just one of them, all of them. They are completely false. They're all completely fake. Now, here's why this is important, that we had that little exercise. Did you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, between their Gospels, they name 185 people by name, including the local leaders and rulers that even non-biblical scholars and uh, just historians would say, look, as we look through other writings, as we look at archaeology, they're naming the actual people. And, you know, here's the thing about names. As I gave you your laptop and you're going to do this, like, history of Haiti, just, you know, you're making it up. Again, you didn't have use of the Internet or anything. You'd be like, okay, what, what has Gilbert ever told us about Haiti? Oh, they speak Creole in Haiti, which is a form of French. And so some of the names that I'm going to use, um, I'm going to use like Pierre. And uh, I'm going to do Jean-Luc, right? Because those are names that I, I think are, are popular. Well, yes, they are popular French names, but they're popular today. Little kids that are being born today in, in 2022, the names that they're being given, the, the most popular baby names here in America right now, are they the same ones from 20 years ago, 50 years ago? I mean, my grandmother, her name was Twyla. She had a sister named Mildred, one named Edna, one named Del Monte. Um, who am I missing? 
I'm missing one. Oh, Opal. Those were very, very popular names in that day and time. Have you heard any of those names used right now? No. That's just like, what, you know, 80, 90 years ago. I asked you to write a story about 200 years ago in Haiti. So are you going to get the right names? No, you're not. But here's what's very, very fascinating. As we look at other writings about the nation of Israel during the time of Jesus, you know, from outside of the Bible, the exact names, the popular names in these other writings for the people of Israel are the exact same names that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are including in their over 185 names that they use. Now, here's what skeptics would say. Well, that doesn't mean that, like, the people in Egypt that were writing, like, in 200 AD, 300 AD, making up these stories, that doesn't mean that maybe in Egypt they didn't have, like, a neighbor or something that was an Egyptian Jew, and they said, hey, uh, give me some popular Jewish names. I'm writing a story right now, you know, could, could you, and, and they gave, like, 185 names from their neighbor. Here's the problem with that, and here's where it all falls apart. Again, we can look at other writings from outside of the Bible, and we know that the popular Jewish names for Egyptians in the first century uh, that were Jews is a completely different list than the popular names for Jews that were living in Israel. Did that make sense to you? That the Jews living in Egypt during the first century, their names were completely different than the Jews living in Israel during the first century. And so here's the, the thing. If the gospel writers were making up names like Simon and Matthew and John and Joseph and Mary and Martha and Salome, they were just making it up. They did so with amazing accuracy. Since again, even those names weren't popular in other parts of the world, even amongst the Jewish people. If, of course, they're not made up, the other conclusion would be what? The other conclusion would be real people named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were writing about real people in their day and time that they knew and who was, you know, or what was going on. And so they're writing about real events in the time and the place where they live. Now, speaking of the places where people live, the gospel writers included very, very specific names of small villages and towns that just wouldn't be known by people outside of, of Israel. Again, think of the illustration I used with you of Haiti. You could again go, oh, I heard Gilbert talk about, um, you know, St. Mark or Port-au-Prince. You know, Port-au-Prince is the, is the capital. St. Mark is one of the major towns that's near where we stay. And so you may be like, oh, I remember. So I'm going to, in my, my story here of history, I'm going to include those names because I know the major cities. Well, let's think about this. Let, let's imagine a scenario right now that we had somebody in California, and they're not really familiar with the East Coast at all, Pennsylvania, Maryland, you know, those types of areas. They're not really familiar with it. And we said, today, write a story about people in Pennsylvania and be as you know, specific as you possibly can. And again, we didn't give them access to the internet. They would probably think to include something like 
Pittsburgh and Harrisburg and Philadelphia. Why? Because they're major cities. You know what they're not going to mention, like when they talk about Harrisburg? Susquehanna Township. Lower Paxton Township. They're, they're not going to mention that in their stories. For our, our Hagerstown uh, campus, you know, they may mention Hagerstown, Maryland, but they're not going to mention the Conococheague Creek. They're not going to mention going to Crumpy's Donuts. Now, you guys are, are laughing because you don't know what Crumpy's Donuts is either. But Crumpy's is like the best donuts you've ever had in your life. But you wouldn't think to put that in your story because only people who live there understand those things. In the same way that the Hagerstown people, they wouldn't understand, you know, some of the things that I talked about for here. And so, again, the skeptics are saying, well, these guys, hundreds of years later, they, they made up these stories about Jesus and the, the people there in the early century. But, again, did you know that the, the gospel writers, they write about very small, obscure places like Arimathea, Cana, Emmaus, and other places. People, uh, places so obscure that only people very familiar with that area would know that they exist. Places that even archaeologists, as they're digging things up, they go, oh yeah, we've actually found evidence that these places really did exist there in the first century. Now, this same type of thing then can be said for what's called textual criticism. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John use phrases, and they talk about customs and habits that all align with what other non-biblical writers say was actually happening there in the first century during Jesus' time. Skeptics, again, they say, no, 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 the Gospels were written, written late. They are written in faraway lands like Africa and Europe. But the question you've got to start to ask yourself is this. Did ancient people in 200, 300 A.D., without the help of anything called the Internet, just get lucky over and over and over and over again with the correct names, the correct villages, the correct customs, the correct phrases, the, the correct everything? Did they just do that over and over and over and get lucky? Or were real guys by the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John people who were writing about all the things that they heard and that they saw? That's a decision you've got to make for yourself. Which one sounds more logical? Lucky guesses over and over and over and over again or that real people were writing eyewitness accounts of what they saw. Now, one more thing before we sort of move on. Throughout the series, I've been talking to you about how when the Council of Laodicea got together, they were able to compare all the different documents to see which ones were real, which ones weren't. Last week, I mentioned to you there were some Gospels that got rejected that didn't make it in to the New Testament. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary. Why did they not make it in? It's because when you read them today, and you can go online and read them today, when you read them today... They read about as well as your story about Haiti 200 years ago. It was so obvious there at 363 as the Council of Laodicea gets together that, well, these aren't really, you know, Mary and Peter, Thomas that are writing these. 
makes no sense. They didn't get any of the, the facts right. And so that's how we know which ones were real and which ones weren't. And again, we're going to continue out throughout the series to look at other ways that we know that are actual eyewitness accounts. So here, here's the summary then for this section. The Gospels are internally corroborated because the authors write about names, rulers, villages, customs, words, and phrases that only an eyewitness could have known. Let me read that to you again because I know some of you are trying to fill in all the blanks. The Gospels are internally corroborated because the authors write about names, rulers, villages, customs, words, and phrases that only an eyewitness could have known. Now the question then becomes, okay, they're internally cooperated, but what about external cooperation? Well, again, this is uh, where Jay Warner Wallace, he, he tells a story. He said, you know, for every five or six murders that he would be assigned as a detective, he would then also be assigned one bank robbery because L.A., you know, they have a lot of bank robberies going on. And so he talked about this one particular case where they, uh, they brought a guy in and they interviewed him. They thought he was the, you know, the, the guy, the suspect. And again, this guy's like, I wasn't even in the bank on that day. And Jay Warner Wallace says, oh, yeah? We actually have surveillance film that would say otherwise. And the guy's like, uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, completely slipped my mind. Yeah, actually, I was there on that day. And Jay Warner Wallace says, well, what were you there for? He's like, well, I was there to cash a check. Oh, okay, you were there to cash a check. Do you remember which teller that you went to? Yeah, it was the teller all the way on the far right side of the bank. Okay, uh, what, what did you do after, you know, you, you cashed a check? He's like, well, I went in. I, I sort of did some things in the lobby a little bit, and I, I got the check cashed, and I got out uh, and got in my buddy's car, and we drove away. And he's like, oh, really? You, you had a friend there with you? And he's like, yeah, I had a friend there. And he's like, well, what kind of car did he drive? And he's like, well, he had a Camry. And it's like, okay, he had a Camry. Now, here's the, here's the thing. The suspect, has he admitted to robbing the bank? No. But are there some facts that we now know, sort of reluctantly, that he's given us? The answer is yes. What are those facts? Number one, he was there. He was there on the day of the robbery. He was at the teller where the robbery occurred. And his buddy had a Camry that was the getaway driver. So he's still denying the whole thing. But yet, even though he's sort of a hostile witness, he's actually given some of the facts to help to corroborate the thing he's trying to deny. The question then becomes, okay, is there anything like that from history where either people were neutral to Christianity or were hostile to Christianity where they write some of these, what he would call a reluctant admission, because that's what this bank robbery suspect had done. He had reluctantly admitted to some certain facts. And so we got to ask ourselves, are there anybody that's writing around the time of Jesus that didn't have a stake in the game. Again, either they're neutral to Christianity or they're hostile to Christianity, and they sort of reluctantly give us some facts about Christianity. And the answer to that is absolutely. They're going to put this on the, uh, the screen for you. There's five guys 
right around the time of Jesus that we get some of these reluctant admissions. The first is a guy, maybe you've heard of him before, his name is Josephus. He lived from 37 AD to 100 AD, and he was a Jew. He never became a Christian, but he wrote primarily about the history of the Jewish people. The next guy is Thallus. He lived from 5 AD to 60 AD. So in other words, he was born before Jesus and died slightly after Jesus. So he's right around that, that uh, time span. He wrote a history book about life in the Mediterranean area in the first century. So he was a historian, not a Christian. Next guy, Tacitus. He lived from 56 AD to 117 AD. This guy was very, very much against Christianity. And he wrote extensively about the Roman Empire and all the people that were trying to rise up against it. And so he, he writes a lot of stuff. In fact, out of like a lot of the ancient historians, you can find a lot of stuff that Tacitus wrote. Next is a person called, uh, and this is another major skeptic, Mara uh, Bar Serapone. He lived from 70 AD, and we're not quite sure when he died, but he was from Syria. He was an author and a philosopher. And then another critic was a guy by the name of Phlegon. He lived from 80 AD to 140 AD, and he wrote a history of the world. Five guys, five guys here, either neutral to Christianity or completely hostile towards Christianity. Do they give us any reluctant admissions? In other words, think about this. What if the Bible as we know it, especially the New Testament, what if all those documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the writings of Peter, the writings of Paul, the writings of James, what if all those documents had gotten destroyed right after they first got written? And we never had access to any of what we call the New Testament. Now, again, if we never had the New Testament, then we're probably not reading the Old Testament because that's the Jewish scriptures. None of it would have made sense to us. So we wouldn't even have the Bible. What if we had no Bible? What could we still know about Jesus because of the writings of these five guys that are reluctant and sometimes hostile uh, to, to Christianity? Well, here's sort of a summary statement. It's going to be on the screen for you. I know it's going to be small, but I'm going to read it to you. It's in your notes. Uh, you'll be able to, actually, it's not in your notes, but I can, I can get it to you. Um, here's what we know about Jesus from these five secular historians. Jesus was born in Judea. He was a wise and virtuous man who performed many miracles. He was able to accurately predict the future. His teachings drew a large following of both Jews and Gentiles, and his followers were known as disciples. He was called the Christ and was believed to be the Messiah. He was called the wise king of the Jews, and his disciples were eventually called Christians. He and his followers became a threat to the Jewish leadership, and as a result, the leaders presented accusations against them to the Roman authorities. Pontius Pilate condemned Jesus to crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. On the day of his crucifixion, a great darkness descended over the land, and an earthquake shook the region. After his death, a quote-unquote mischievous superstition spread about him from Palestine to Rome that he had rose again from the dead, and he offered proof of it by showing his injuries to his followers where he had been pierced by nails, and afterwards his followers were persecuted for their faith in him. Now, here's the thing. Remember, that was written, and again, that's a summary statement of, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, but that's a summary statement of five guys that are either neutral or hostile to Christianity, and those five guys wrote those things within a 20 to 100 year period after the supposed resurrection. Even if we had no New Testament, doesn't what I just read to you sound an awful lot like the New Testament? <laughs> 
Isn't that amazing? So we have these, these writings from these hostile people. Again, the bank robber. He gave some reluctant admissions, and that's exactly what these guys did as well. Now, there's one then final bit of external uh, cooperation that I want to look at, and that is archaeology. Remember, the New Testament is claiming to report on history, and so if that's the case, then there should be archaeological proof that would either prove it or help to tear down Christianity. Now, skeptics say, well, here's the deal. Since everything that we read about in the New Testament can't be backed up by archaeology, that means it must not be true. But that's crazy. Just because something hasn't been found yet doesn't mean that it's not true. Here's what they could say that would be a valid argument. If they could ever say what archaeology has dug up contradicts the New Testament, then they would have a valid argument. But here's what you need to know, and I'm going to talk about archaeology in the final week of the series in even more depth. Here's what you need to know today about archaeology. There has never, ever, 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 ever been one piece of archaeological evidence that's been dug up that has contradicted Scripture. In fact, the exact opposite has happened. Over and over and over again, things have been dug up that prove that, yes, what the writers wrote about was real and it's true. In fact, there's so much of it that there's an entire magazine you can subscribe to called Biblical Archaeology Review. And all it is is just a magazine that you can just read about all the latest new findings that are coming out about what they've dug up and how it applies and affirms Scripture. Now, again, what the skeptics will do is they'll, they'll say things like, well, we haven't found this and we haven't found that, so that means it's not true. But then every time something new is dug up that proves that it's true, instead of saying, okay, you guys are right as Christians, you know what they do? They go to the next one and they go, well, that's not, we've never found anything for that. So let me give you just some examples of this through the years where skeptics were like major, heavy, all in saying, this absolutely proves that Christianity is not true, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not reliable eyewitness testimony. So here's some of the things that they thought they had us, right? Ah, we got you. Let's look at them. First one is this. They thought that there was no Quinerius from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, until an inscription was found in Antioch talking about Quinerius. They thought that there was no pavement from John 19, 13, until the Tower of Antonia was discovered. They thought that there was no Pontius Pilate from the Gospels, until the discovery of the Pilate inscription. They thought that the Romans didn't do crucifixions in Jesus' day, until the discovery of the Yahan remains. But wait, there's more. They thought there was no Linesius from Luke 3.1 until the discovery of the Linesius inscription. They thought there was no Iconium in Phygeria from Acts 14.6 until the discovery of the Iconium monument. They thought there was no such title as Politarch from Acts 17.6 until 19 such inscriptions were found. They thought there was no uh, Sergius Paulius from Acts 13 until the discovery of the Soli inscription. Now, I've just given you 10, or uh, how many did I give you? I gave you eight different ones there that, again, they thought over and over and over again, ah, we got them. There's no such thing as this. And then archaeology, they dig it up, and they find it, and they're like, 
Oh, yeah, okay, but uh, what about this one then? And then archaeology dicks it up. Oh, okay. You would think eventually they go, you know, <laughs> they keep digging this stuff up. Maybe it actually is real and it's true. So here's the summary statement for this section. The Gospels are externally corroborated through both the written testimony of ancient and often hostile non-biblical writers and through the many archaeological discoveries that have been made throughout the years. Now, as I wrap up today, let me tell you where we've been and where we're going. So we looked in the first week at Luke. You remember how he starts his Gospel? What's the word he used? What's the very first word of Luke's Gospel? He says, many people have been writing about what I'm about to write about. So he says, there's a lot of eyewitnesses that are writing about this. And remember, we talked about it today. You want a lot of eyewitnesses because it helps to fill in some of the gaps and it helps to actually corroborate some of the facts as well. And so we looked at that in, in week one, that there's many people that are claiming to be these eyewitnesses, but we don't trust eyewitnesses, do we? What do we do to eyewitnesses? We do what? We, come on, yeah, we test eyewitnesses. You've always got to test the eyewitnesses. There's four questions that we do to test eyewitnesses. The first is, were they actually present or not? Last week, we looked at that. Was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John present? We made a pretty convincing argument in case that, yes, they actually were present. But again, just because they are present doesn't mean that what they're saying is true. And so then you got to look at, is there anything that would corroborate what they're saying? And today, what we looked at is there's both internal and external cooperation in what they're saying. But that still doesn't mean that what they're saying and writing is true. That's why we've got to do the, the final two questions then. And so next week, we're going to look at, okay, how do we know that, because even if it was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and they were writing, and they were given all the details like we looked at today, how do we know that what they wrote shortly after Jesus' resurrection, until the time of 363 A.D., when we have now what's called the Bible, how do we know that the story didn't change over time? How do we know that at the beginning it wasn't that just Jesus was a good man, he was a good moral person, a good teacher, and he was crucified? How do we know that as the writings and the copies continued on, that people didn't start to add extra details to it, like that he claimed to be God, and he rose again from the dead. How do we know that the same writings from early on are the same writings that eventually make it into the Bible? That's what we'll look at next week. Is there evidence that we can see what's called a chain of command, that it got faithfully passed on from one generation to the next? Then in the final week, of the, or, uh, the, the final question we're going to do is we'll look at the disciples themselves. Were they biased in any way? Were they prejudiced in any way? Was there like certain motivations they may have had to lie? And so we'll look at all of that and the evidence for that. Then in the final week of the series, what we'll do is we'll sort of wrap it up. Sort of closing arguments, so to speak, right? And we'll, we'll look at everything that, that we've done. And I want to review some extra things that we haven't even uh, talked about at this point and what even we'll have talked about up to that point. And then there'll be time for you to be like a jury and, and make a decision. And, and the reason this is so important that you eventually make a decision with this is I've been talking about this throughout the entire series. A lot of people think that we as Christians, that we just base our faith on faith alone. That we base our, our faith that, well, because it's in the Bible, then it must be true. So because the Bible tells me so, that's why I believe what I believe. 
But what I'm trying to share with you, whether you're Christian or not, that Christianity is now not about putting your faith in faith. It's about putting your faith in facts. And the reason this is so important is what Jesus talks about and what the authors of the New Testament talk about is of eternal significance. You see, if we can prove that either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is a reliable historical account of the life and times of Jesus in the early church, then that means we have got to take extremely serious what they talk about. And the words of Jesus, that him saying, I'm God, and him saying that I have the power over your sin, I have the power over death, that if you want to live forever, if you want to spend eternity forever in heaven with God the Father, he says, it only comes through me. And so if we can prove factually that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the real deal, and this is real history, again, we have got to take the words of Jesus very, very seriously. That has implications of how we live our lives day to day, what we're doing with our lives. So this is of extreme importance, that eventually you come to that decision, is this real history or not? If it's not, then it is a book of fairy tales. And I would encourage you, don't ever attend here again. Don't tune in online ever again. Why would you waste your time on a book of fairy tales? But if it is true, if it is real, again, that has consequences both for this life and the life to come as well. So with all that said, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day and uh, for these past couple weeks as we're really, for some, cementing our beliefs and our faith. For others, this is them kicking the tires on this whole thing called Christianity. And they're starting to question because they thought it was a book of fairy tales. And maybe they're starting to question, wait a second, maybe this is for real. Again, God, we know if it is for real, then that means major, major things for our lives. And so I pray that you would continue through your spirit to speak to the hearts and the minds of people. Help them to see what the facts are. I'm just going to lay it out, and then they've got to make their own decision. I can't do that for them. Nobody else can do that for them. They can't believe just because their parents said so or because the Bible says so. They need to believe because they know that they have faith that, Jesus, you really were resurrected from the dead and that you and you alone have the keys to eternal life. So, Father, just continue to convict and convince as you need to in people's lives. Thank you again, Jesus, that many of us do believe in your resurrection and your resurrection has changed us. So thank you for that. Help us to continue to share that good news with others. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.